If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 24. Though the Apostle Paul holds the record for having written the most books of the New Testament, Luke holds the record for writing the most words. A full quarter of the New Testament is actually composed by Luke. He has written the longest gospel, uh, the gospel according to Luke, and he has also written Acts. And together that makes up 25% of the New Testament scriptures. There's also some who would see Luke as the one who actually wrote the letter to the Hebrews. But we cannot be certain of that in this life. And uh, regardless, uh, with Luke and Acts, he still makes an incredible contribution to us Uh, by way of making a contribution to the New Testament. His contribution is not just in terms of size either. For Luke uniquely writes not just an account of Jesus and his life, but also an account of Jesus' disciples in the early church in the book of Acts, those who would follow after Jesus and preach his name. And in in Luke and in Acts, what you really have are parts one and two, Uh, of a two-volume work. He is really uh, writing so that those two works may be read together. And this is why in the course of preaching book by book through the Bible, we went from Matthew to Mark to John and now back to Luke so that we could see Luke and Acts together um, uh, as they are meant to be written. And from the very beginning, Luke tells us specifically why he has set out to write his gospel the way that he has. In the first four verses, there's an uh, introduction of sorts where Luke says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught." Luke is writing specifically to a man named Theophilus. And based on the the form of address, most excellent, which we see elsewhere being used of a governing official, we believe Theophilus was probably a wealthy man of some importance. Theophilus was also a Gentile who had been taught about Christ and had believed. Yet we know from Acts there existed much tension in the early church about whether or not those coming from a Gentile background were in fact full recipients of the promises made to Israel for the salvation of their souls. And Luke is writing to Theophilus and others like him to bring certainty in their minds to the things that they had been taught and the things that they had in fact believed about Christ. He is writing to help assure them, yes, all of what you have believed is in fact true, not least of which the full inclusion of people like you, not Jews, into the promises of God. And Luke writes in such a way that really there can be no doubt about these things. Luke has been called, even by secular writers, one of the greatest of the ancient historians who ever lived. Why? Because he actually did the hard work of going down and hunting up the eyewitnesses and getting directly from them and from their memories, their experiences, the things that he writes about in his books. 
He says, even though other people have written about this, and he has in mind probably Mark and the Gospel of Mark, which he knew he had with him as a primary source, nevertheless, he also said, I have been following these things for a long time, and so I felt like it was appropriate to write these things up as well. In other words, Luke, in his own search for faith in Christ, or perhaps flowing from his experience in faith in Christ, he has actually gone and verified for himself that all the things he had been taught were actually true true. And so you have all of these wonderful little comments through his books that help you to know that this is true. For example, when Jesus is a little child, uh, you have this comment uh, about the experiences that are taking place and Mary treasured all of these things up in her heart. Now, how would he know that? How would he know that Mary uh, was, was treasuring these things in her heart? Well, it's simple. He talked to Mary. I mean, you can imagine uh, uh, she would not have been some hidden woman, but, but clearly a woman of prominence in the early church. And he would have went and was sat down and perhaps he would have brought her coffee or something and said, tell me what it was like growing up with baby Jesus. Tell me what it was like. And of course, uh, you know, Luke is the only one that records this incident when he's even 12 and he already has an awareness of who he is as the Messiah, the very Son of God. And uh, he gets kind of left behind in the midst of this great caravan leaving Jerusalem. And she says, yeah, this is what it was like growing up with the perfect son. He was always about his father's business. There are other people that we can imagine he talked to, people who saw Jesus heal individuals. And we can imagine Luke saying to them, so, so you saw you saw him spit into the ground, you saw him mix the mud and put it on the man's eyes, and, and suddenly he could, he could see. And they said, yeah, I saw it, it was amazing. He would say, do you know the man's name? He said, sure, he just lives half a mile down the road. And he would say, great, he would go and find this man and say, so tell me, is this really what happened? And the man would say, yes, that's exactly what happened. And he would talk to others who heard Jesus teach, perhaps the very words that we read from this morning. And he would ask them, well, what do you remember Jesus saying? What do you remember that he taught? And he would be writing these things down. Then he would go to someone else and say, so you were there with him. What do you remember about what Jesus taught? And in all of this, he went on and on and on seeking to, to find the testimony of the eyewitnesses of these things. And you see, uh, as you read, Luke dropping names. And it's not... It's not the names of famous people so that you would think Luke is some great and famous man, but rather it's the names of everyday people who had encountered Jesus. And he does this so that you will know he has actually talked to these people and he is giving the accounts as they themselves have experienced it. And so not only would this have been helpful in compiling his gospel, but Luke goes the second step. We will, as we will see in Acts, Luke not only believed in Jesus and, and drew up an account of his life and teachings, but he also decides to become history himself. At some point, he hooks up with the Apostle Paul and accompanies him on his missionary journeys, uh, not only as an assistant in the work, but also, surely, a personal physician to Paul. You read Acts, Paul did not have an easy life. His back was practically human jelly from all of the beatings that had taken place. He was constantly in prison, exposed to the elements and sick. And here Luke is going along and we know from Colossians 4 is this physician, surely in part to help maintain the Apostle Paul's health. And in all of this then, doctor, historian, theologian, Luke is an amazing man who wanted to assure his readers, even as he himself had been assured, the things they had been taught were true. As we think about him writing from that perspective, we have to think that this is helpful to us today, isn't it? I mean, I know some of you are getting up there in years, but none of you are that old. 
I mean, none of you are with Jesus. None of you saw those things firsthand. None of us have. We have all believed because of the testimony of others, not least of which those who have written from this very book. And so the skeptic's book, the skeptic's gospel is always Luke's. Because here is one who has gone through for himself, though believing because of the testimony of others, not having seen or heard Jesus himself, nevertheless he goes and he digs the facts and he gets to the very truth of the matter so that he can be assured that what he heard was true. And so for us today, if we have any question, did this really happen? We go to Luke and he says, yeah, I talked to the people who were there. I talked to those who saw it. It's not, just, it's not just third and fourth hand information. It's not just innuendo. It's not just conjecture. These people were there. And in Acts, he can say, I was even there. Luke says, I've done the research and it's all true. Even the most amazing fact of all, Jesus' death for sinners and his resurrection from the dead. And that's the passage that we want to look at this morning from Luke chapter 24. We're going to begin reading in verse 36, but I want us to understand the context of what is happening here. Uh, Previously, the resurrection itself has taken place. Jesus has died on the cross as he has predicted on the third day. He has come back to life and a few people have seen him. The women have gone to the tomb. They think the body is stolen. An angel says, why are you looking for him? He's not here, just as he said he would not be here. And you have these other two uh, men who are walking and they encounter, uh, not knowingly at first, they encounter the resurrected Jesus. And all these stories are very quickly uh, spreading amongst the disciples. And so at verse 36 we see these are the very things they were talking about. They were talking about these things. And as they were, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw the Spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And we had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbel- and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave to him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. They led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up, his, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of God. Now, as we read this, did you notice the emphasis on the resurrection itself? As as Jesus wants his disciples to understand, so Luke wants his readers to understand that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was in a real, glorified flesh and blood body. It was not some apparition. It was not some spirit. It was not some resurrection of the spirit of Christ alone. It was a bodily resurrection. Jesus says, look, look at my hands. You can only see the nail prints, but touch them. It's not just an appearance of me. It's really me. Uh, He says, says, look at my feet. 
Again, the nail prints, but look, I'm walking around on the ground. I'm not kind of floating and hovering like some kind of disembodied spirit. It's really me returned to you in bodily form. And they were still surprised, and so he goes a step further. He says, look, do you have anything to eat? They said, well, we've got this broiled fish here. And he takes a bite and he eats it. And of course, you, you know what they're thinking. They're waiting for it just to like, you know, drop through his mouth because he's not real. But it doesn't happen. He actually eats the food. He ingests it into his body. And he says, he says, don't doubt. Take joy. Just as I said, I am alive again forevermore. He is a real physical person eating real physical food. He is Jesus raised from the dead. And just like the rest of the apostles, the New Testament writers, Luke wants to show that truth, that reality has massive implications, not just for the lives of his people, but for the entirety of history and the world. A few weeks ago, I was listening to a debate online between two professing Christians, one named Adrian Warnock, who runs a very popular Christian blog. He is a, a friend theologically, and I would encourage you to Google him and, and, and check him out. The other was a professor of theology in England, one who would not be considered a friend theologically. And they were discussing the resurrection of Christ because Adrian has actually written a book called Raised with Christ, uh, The Resurrection, Why It Matters Today, or something along those lines. And in the, in the, in the course of this debate, the professor said that... There's actually very little evidence in the New Testament to suggest Jesus was physically raised from the dead. And even if there were, it's not important for Christians to believe that. Of course, Adrian Warnock, in a very forthright and yet loving British way, said, that my dear friend, I doubt that you're a Christian. I doubt for your salvation. And of course, the man was aghast at that. And he's like, oh, oh, oh. He said, we can't be so primitive as to think that there's any one core set of beliefs someone must have in order to be considered a Christian. But isn't that the very thing the Bible teaches? I mean, doesn't Paul very explicitly say in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that this is of first importance, that Jesus died according to the Scriptures for sins and He was raised on the third day? Paul says if you don't, but don't believe that, then you're not a Christian. And Luke would believe the same thing. All of what that professor believed, all of what contemporary beliefs today would stand contrary to everything we see in the Bible, not just with Paul and Jude and Peter and Jesus himself, but also what Luke wants to make clear, and that is this. There are certain beliefs that must be held if we are to legitimately see ourselves as God's people, as Christians. And all of those things are wrapped up in not just the cross, but the bodily resurrection of Christ. In fact, all of Luke's Gospels, or all of Luke's Gospel, just like the rest of the Gospels, really are building, are moving towards the cross, resurrection, and for Luke, the only one who tells us of it, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ back to heaven. It's from this reality of the resurrection that we see three central truths about who Christ is and the assurance we can have about His work and the implications it has for our lives. And it's those three things that we want to see this morning. First, we see this. Jesus is the sovereign Lord who fulfills God's plan. Jesus is the sovereign Lord who fulfills God's plan. One of the major themes that we find, and you would find if you read through Luke's gospel, and I would encourage you to do that. Sometimes we, 
We get this idea that the scriptures, we've got to, you know, we've got to go slow, we've got to think meditatively, we've got to draw out from every verse great scriptural truths for our lives. And there's certainly a place for that kind of reading. But sometimes we just need to sit down and, and read the story. We just need to get the sweep of what Luke is telling us. And in the time it would take you to watch a two-hour movie, you can sit and read through the Gospel of Luke and get a story that is more captivating and more relevant for your life than anything playing uh, on Netflix or in the theater right now. Just sit down and read through Luke. Or take it 15 minutes uh, for, for, you know, for, for a few days or 30 minutes for a few days and, and read through it. And what you will see is this, this focus on the, on the necessity of Jesus coming to fulfill all that God was wanting to do. Now, if you've been here for the other talks on the Gospels, you know, really, this has been a theme in all of them, hasn't it? Wanting to demonstrate in different ways that Jesus has come to fulfill all that God was planning to do, all that he was promising. Different from Matthew, you remember, who takes all of the, the key places and people and events uh, of, the, of the Old Testament and showing how Jesus typologically, that is, that is almost as shadow and reality, brings to fulfillment those things. Luke is much more direct. He's writing to a Gentile audience. Audience. He's not as nuanced. And you find angels, you find prophets, you find Jesus himself saying, this is happening in order to fulfill God's plan. This is happening in order to fulfill God's plan. This is happening in order to fulfill God's plan. You see him quoting directly from the Old Testament. Here is the prophecy and Jesus fulfilled it. And he is wanting to show in every way, uh, clearly Jesus is the focus of God's plan. And now Jesus says, if you didn't get it, if after three years of living with me and listening to me and hearing the scriptures read in light of me, you still don't get it, let me make it clear for you. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In fact, just before this in the chapter earlier in chapter 24 is one of my favorite passages in all the Gospels. You have these two men on the day of Christ's resurrection, traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're talking about all that's taken place over the last week. The, the culmination of Jesus' life and ministry. And suddenly there is, this, there is this man, this other traveler walking along with them. It's Christ resurrected, but they don't recognize him. And he says, you know, you guys are really in a, a pretty intense conversation here. What are you talking about? And the one man, again, Luke has tracked down and tells us his name is Cleopas. He says, you know, kind of aghast at Jesus, you know, what's the matter with you? Where have you been? You had your, hole in the, your head in a hole in the ground? Are you like the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what we're talking about here? There's this guy named Jesus, and he came, and he did mighty things with the power of God, and he taught mighty things from the Word of God, and we thought he was the Redeemer. Even now, all of this takes place on the third day. Now think about what, he, what he's saying there. These are not just casual people going around in Jerusalem. Here are people that actually heard Jesus teach. They saw the miracles they did. They even know something was going to happen on the third day, and yet they can still not bring themselves to believe Jesus has actually been raised from the dead. So monumentous was such an event. And yet Jesus himself suddenly reveals that he is the Christ to them. And he says, are you so foolish and slow of heart not to believe what I told you? Is it not so from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end that the Christ must suffer and die and be raised back to life? 
it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you just imagine that Bible study? I mean, seriously, Jesus himself, from memory, starting at the creation of the world to the final prophetic word in Malachi about the, the prophecy of John the Baptist coming to him, explaining, and this part points to me this way, and this part points to me this way, and this part points to me that way. I mean, if I had a time machine, that's like stop two on the trip, okay? The, the morning of the resurrection, it would be the first one. And... Maybe in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll get to go through that again with the risen Christ. And yet, even then, this is how we should read the Scriptures. With these, these Christ-centered glasses, as it were, that help us to see that all of these laws and all of the plans and intentions, all of the saving movement of God is focused in Christ's work on the cross and through His resurrection. He is, as it were, the Everest of the Scriptures. He is the high point to which everything is either pointing up towards or flowing down from. Specifically, specifically, He is at the center of God's plan as the Sovereign Lord, bringing together all of these things, not just, not just caught up in the events as they happen, but determining that they will happen the way God desires. All of that is focused on His work and the salvation of sinners. And this is the second thing that we see from uh, these verses, the second great truth that flows from Jesus' death and resurrection, and that is this. Jesus is the risen Lord who brings salvation to sinners. Jesus is the risen Lord who brings salvation to sinners. In chapter 19, Jesus is clear. He says of Himself, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The question is, how did He do that? How is it possible for Jesus to seek and save the lost? He tells us here in verses 46 to 47, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. It's in the cross and resurrection that salvation is made possible. And Luke, like the rest of the New Testament, helps us to understand that on the cross, Jesus stood in place of sinners, bearing the judgment of God in their place. Jesus' death was a substitution, the perfect man for imperfect people. More than just imperfect, for people who willfully rejected God. In rebellion and sin, they turned their back on the one who created them, the one who deserved their worship and their allegiance, and they went their own way. And though they deserved hell and damnation forever under God's righteous and just hand, in love and mercy, God sent Christ to save us from ourselves and the wrath that we brought upon us. The Bible is clear that it's in believing in Jesus' name, trusting Him to be the one who makes us right with God, and not anything that we can do in and of ourselves, that we can have forgiveness with God the Father. Therefore, Jesus says, His name must be proclaimed. And notice that proclamation of His name begins in Jerusalem with the Jewish people. It begins with the people of promise in the Old Covenant, the very people looking for salvation through the Messiah. But it doesn't end there. It's, he's not just a Christ, a Savior for Israel. He says it must go to all the nations. And again, this is a huge part of Luke's work, both in this Gospel and in Acts. It's part of the whole reason that he is writing, which we will talk about a lot more next week, 
this, this lingering uh, suspicion of the Gentiles among the Jewish Christians. Were they the full recipients of the gospel of God? And you have to understand the reason why that that, that was still such a, a cultural thing to break apart was because they had been raised to hate Gentiles. They were the enemies of God and His people. And yet now, their Messiah comes and says, it's for everybody. You lived your whole life keeping the law and trying to be faithful to God, and suddenly Christ comes and He says, don't worry about all that stuff. And these guys, who have never known anything of the promises of God, if they turn to faith in me, they are part of now the new people of God. It was hard for them to grasp. And so Luke is writing to say, look, from the beginning, this was Jesus' intention that both Jews and Gentiles together, that there would be no racial barrier among the people of God. But more than that, not just ethnic barriers, Luke also shows how the gospel crosses all manner of social barriers. Again, the other gospels talk about this, and yet it is highlighted in the gospel of Luke. He is an expert at showing the reversal of what is to be expected from from the religious community in terms of the, the spread of the gospel. First of all, who was Jesus born to? Was he born in, uh, into a couple of, of great wealth in the halls of power? No. He was born to an impoverished couple out in some rural city that no one thought anything good could come from. How do we know they were poor? Well, simply this. When they go to take Jesus to dedicate him at the temple, the offering they were supposed to, to give in place of his life as the firstborn should have been a lamb. And yet the law makes provision for those that are poor and says you can offer two small doves instead. In fact, that's the offering that Mary and Joseph gave. Now, certainly it is not lost on us the not so much irony, but the plan of God again that a lamb was not offered for Jesus because he was the lamb. Nevertheless, it is not to the great and powerful that Jesus was born. It is to the poor. And in telling this, Luke wants us to to be open to seeing that though the rich are supposedly blessed by God, in fact, they were the ones who found it most difficult to believe in Christ. It was, in fact, the poor and the downtrodden that the gospel came in power and was greeted with faith. Similarly, women are given a prominent place in Luke's gospel. And again, we're not pitting the gospels against one another. We're not saying that somehow women are not important in the other books. We're simply wanting to show that, that Luke delights to show that people the world thought were worthless and insignificant and unimportant were great in the kingdom of God in the eyes of Jesus. That the grace of God is no discriminator of persons. That the gospel, the gospel comes to all people equally. Now I would think, I hope, that everyone in this church will be able to look back even in our own recent years to see how our countries and even really other parts of the Western world, their cultural baggage affected how we understood the gospel going to people of other uh, ethnic backgrounds. How racism, uh, unfortunately, became a, um, a more important factor in our lives than the example set to us through the gospel of Luke. And yet, I, I, I long to take encouragement when I look at my, my kids' generation. They notice the difference, but they have no category for racism. I mean, you, you, you just, you, you talk to them and, and you can kind of ask sideways questions. They don't really know what you're asking. And it's clear, they have no clue what you're talking about. There, there's no hint of discrimination based on anything that our country would, would be based on. 
And yet I cannot have hope that it will fully be gone because, frankly, racism is not just taught. We want to believe that as a society, that racism is something we have to actively teach. The reality is that racism springs from a wicked heart. It is the putrid, godless fruit of sinners. And regardless of whether it's, it's ethnic background or race, we will find ways to discriminate and to divide up people and to not treat them as equals. And frankly, even today, although outwardly, we would seem to be doing much better than we had because of the race issue. Nevertheless, individually, and even in some ways, corporately, as a church, we still discriminate. Think about this. How many times have you been at the store and you've seen someone who is the very embodiment of everything that you don't like with society? They have piercings in places you can't imagine. They have more than you would ever find appropriate. Their hair color is at least one shade, maybe two or three all at the same time. They're completely unnatural. Perhaps it's even gender-bending uh, attire that makes you just want to get away from that person down the other aisle and go for your peanut butter after they've left. What does that say about your heart? It says we still have some work to do, doesn't it? It says that in our heart of hearts, that we would not say it publicly, we still discriminate that we still want to hold ourselves off like the Pharisees and say, do not come too close lest you stain me with your sin. And it could be all manner of things that we would, we would genuinely see as sinful and unhelpful. And yet in our minds, we have automatically shunted them off from our sphere of responsibility. We have had condescending thoughts towards them and have essentially said, I don't mind if you go to hell because it makes me uncomfortable to talk to you. That's the very opposite of what Luke is showing us in the gospel that he has written. It's the very opposite of the very heart of the gospel which says, those things no longer matter. There is Christian and there is bound for hell and that's it. And whether that person uh, stinks, whether that person is odd and you can't stand to be around them because they have a quirky personality, perhaps it's a physical handicap that makes you uncomfortable, you love them and you go to them because even if they are the most overt and open sinner that you can imagine, so are you in the eyes of God. And you were shown grace and mercy when you did not deserve it. How much more should we go to those? that do not deserve mercy, and yet God commands us to go because He has shown mercy to all in Christ. God has saved sinners through the sacrifice of His Son. He is now risen as Lord, and therefore, and therefore He must be proclaimed to all peoples, regardless of ethnic, social standing, or in our mind, degree of sin. Because this is true, we come to the third implication of the resurrection of Christ, and that is this. Jesus is the ascended Lord who sends the church. Jesus is the ascended Lord who sends His church. Jesus has just opened the disciples' minds to understand clearly how the Scriptures point to Him, and now He tells them, you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. Have you ever talked to someone who has been an eyewitness to some great historical event? There's not many left, frankly, because it seems like a lot of the great historical events uh, are of the past. Although we can think of some, as, we, as it's often referred to our own day of infamy, perhaps talking to someone who was uh, 
present in New York City at 9-11, perhaps someone who was overseas when, they, when the Berlin Wall fell. Those would all be momentous events. I think it was my very first mission trip. It was, I was in, uh, I think, a freshman in high school going down to help out after Hurricane Andrew. And it was not a formal trip. In fact, um, I was, almost wasn't even allowed to go because I was thought to be too young. It was just a hodgepodge of people that our minister of music knew. And I got to know somebody on that trip, an elderly man that I had seen around the church and he'd been there for a long time, but all I knew was his name. In the midst of some late night conversation, we began talking about his experiences in World War II. And I said, well, my, my grandfather served in the Pacific and he told me that he served in the European theater. Specifically, he was part of the, the company that liberated France. More than that even, he was on Omaha Beach and the invasion of Normandy. And if that means nothing to you, those terms, perhaps you've seen that ghastly and almost unwatchable horror of war that is the first 40 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. That's what he was at and went through. And it's, it's a whole lot different, isn't it? To read about something in history books, to watch a recreation in a movie, to hear about someone talking, than to see someone who was actually there and recount what they saw and heard and did. And with that in mind, think about what Jesus is telling the disciples here. What has he said? He said, all of these events, the plans of the ages, the promises and the law of the prophets, all that God has been working towards has come to fulfillment and you have been a part of it. You have seen it firsthand. You are eyewitnesses to the coming of the Messiah. The most important, most, most defining event in human history. God takes on flesh and offers himself a willingly, willingly for sinners. All that history is about in you disciples, you have seen this. He says, don't sit back and glory in this. Go and tell because it must be proclaimed. It must be proclaimed. My death and resurrection must be proclaimed because it is only with repentance and belief in that truth that forgiveness of sins can come. Nevertheless, he says, Do not go yet, but wait, because I am not sending you out on your own steam. I am going to send to you the promise of God the Father, the Holy Spirit himself, who will empower you for the mission that I am sending you on. And here again, we have an important theme in Luke, Luke's writings, and that is the role of the Holy Spirit himself. Way back at the very beginning of the gospel, John prophesied that when Jesus came, he would baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is he who said that was himself, we are told, full of the Holy Spirit even from conception. Can you imagine that? I mean, that, that presses my theological categories. And this is where you say, I have to, I can't just say, well, this means this and this, and you tie it up because you believe something. You've got to say, what does the text say? And that's mind-boggling to me. I mean, you have one of the most amazing stories. You have uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, her cousin Elizabeth, six months pregnant with John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. And she has just been told, Mary has just been told she's going to give birth to the Messiah. And she doesn't know what to do. And she's excited and she's scared. And she runs to go see Elizabeth. And she's like, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, are you here? And Luke tells us in the womb that John the Baptist, full of the Holy Spirit, leaped to hear the voice of the mother of the Savior. That's just mind-boggling. And yet that is the power of the Spirit. 
That is the power of God's Spirit. And Jesus says, that is the same power that I fulfilled my mission as Messiah in, and that is the same power that I am giving to you as a gift that you may be able to accomplish the work that I have set aside for you to do. It is by His direction and power that the disciples will be witnesses to Jesus proclaiming salvation to all the nations. And of course, that same promise of power extends to us today. It is the Spirit that brings life to sinners and seals us in Christ, securing our salvation until the day of His return. But more than that, it is the Spirit that leads us away from sin and prompts us to be a witness for Christ, to share the gospel with people. In every way, He is the one who gives us strength to live lives that bear witness to Christ, to the glory of Christ. How are we to respond to such things? Luke tells us. Then Jesus led the disciples out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Given all that Jesus had done, given the mission he has called us to, this is the picture of how we should respond every day with obedient, joyful worship of God. Jesus is the resurrected and the ascended Lord. He didn't just come back to life. This is no Da Vinci Code. He did not come back to life and take a wife and have kids and die again. No, this is the Son of God who came back to life, glorified in flesh and blood, never to die again, who ascended back to heaven from whence He came, seated at the right hand of the Father for all time, until He returns again. Because Jesus is the resurrected and ascended Lord, it means that He really was God in the flesh. He really did accomplish salvation on the cross. He really did fulfill God's promises. And He really is the sovereign Lord over all things, ruling with all authority from the throne of heaven itself. This is why, like the disciples, we can rejoice and obey, and, and, uh, we can rejoice and obey Christ's commands with utter abandon while we tell people what He has done on the cross. All of our worst fears have been dealt with. All of the greatest hope in Him lives forever, even as He continues to show us love and give us power by His Spirit. You know, we live in an age of skepticism. We live in a day when even the news that used to be able to to end with, and that's the way it was, today can only be ended with, and that's the way we're going to spin it tonight. You can't trust it. What are they leaving out? What, what, what statistics are they exaggerating? What are they pushing to, to selectively present what they want us to understand? We get emails all the time suggesting amazing, wild things. And yet half of them, you go on websites and you realize they're all just made up. No, Mr. Rogers was not a sniper in Vietnam who wore a sweater to hide his tattoos. I'm sorry. Read the biography. He's a Presbyterian minister. And all of that playfulness with the truth has made us wary of anything that sounds too good to be true, anything that sounds bizarre and miraculous. And yet here we have an author who in some sense would have fit in very well today. He was skeptical. He wanted to know, is this rumor? Is this exaggeration? Or did this really happen? I believe... But I have, like Augustine, Luke would say, faith-seeking understanding. I want to know that this is really how it happened. 
And so he went to the eyewitnesses. He verified the information. And what he came away with is the firm belief that all of this was true and it was the most glorious news the world would ever hear. Luke can show us that while we weren't there, though we were not eyewitnesses to these things, we, have, have, we can have confidence in the truthfulness of what we have been taught. We can be rest assured that Jesus is the Christ. He died for sinners like us and that He has risen from the dead and thus His name alone needs to be proclaimed that sinners might be saved. All that is left for us to do is to believe in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and in being forgiven and being made right with Him, strive to live by His grace and the power of the Spirit that He provides, a life of devotion to Christ the King, honoring His name among all peoples in this city and around the world. Father, we rejoice to know that Christ is truly Savior and Lord. Father, how, how can we not take comfort and delight in knowing, even in the midst of the most terrible circumstances, that the one who died for us now lives for us in authority over all things, so that we need not fear anything. Father, we are not only thankful for the salvation you have given to us, but God, the power of your Spirit, which we, you have sent into our hearts to give us freedom from sin, confidence in the words that we have believed that we might proclaim it to others. God, in every way, might we continue in our belief and faithfulness to you, trusting in Christ alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.